This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health Insurance with AIA Vitality, cover that protects and rewards. To find out more, call 133 AIA or visit aiahealth.com.au today. When there's blood in the streets, uh, lift up, check under the carpet. Many try, but few become master of the mark market. Well, Lindsay Partridge, thanks very much for coming on Master of the Market. I know you're really busy, so I uh, appreciate your time. It's great to be here. And, and I thought maybe we could start by just introducing uh, Brickworks, You're obviously the CEO there. Maybe it's a little bit about of history around Brickworks and um, what your different business units are. Well, Brickworks was originally uh, put together by a bunch of Sydney brickmakers to buy the state government out of manufacturing bricks. That was back in 1934. And it, uh, the government changed a few times and that particular Brickworks, which eventually became the Olympic site, swapped hands a few times as well. But uh, that's how we were formed. And um, they folded one of the companies in there, which was the Austral Brick Company, which is, of course, our, our national brand that dated back, it, it started business in 1908. Um, and that was, that's how we got together. We had 11, 11 plants across Sydney, listed on the Australian stock market in 61. And in 1968, they were worried about being taken over by uh, London Brick. And there was another company on the stock market called Washington H. Sol Patterson, who was the exact same market cap as ours. It's an interesting number, $26 million. They swapped a million shares. And then they went on and started buying shares in each other for a while. And in the end, actually, we spent $26 million. And that, um, that shareholding today, we have 39% of Sol Patterson's, and that's worth about $2 billion. And so that's one of our core and fundamental investments, which makes us a bit different from any other building products company. Uh, so that was the one, one of the real foundations, and that got us through a lot of recessions and things. Um, in the early um, noughties, we really had a lot of surplus land we didn't need for clay reserves anymore, and we're getting much more recycled clay in. So the whole concept of having you know, thousands of acres of land for clay reserves started to come undone. And so we formed a joint venture with Goodman, and we got approvals for industrial property. I mean, we saw that there was a future position in industrial, where there wasn't necessarily a future position in residential or any residential land we had to sell. And we started building, you know, they'd go get a tenant and we'd build the shed and develop the land, etc. Anyhow, here we are. That was 2008. We kicked off 2020. That's worth $2 billion. <laughs> and our share, that's a bit over $700 million. So that, those two things, uh, Solpats is about half of our assets. The property trust is about a quarter. So three quarters of assets are in investments. So that means while we've got, you know, building products can be very volatile. You know, we have this enormous foundation of wealth there that allows us to really... Uh, you know, just continue to pay our dividend no matter what sort of goes on. And um, more recently, we expanded our brick business. We couldn't expand in Australia. We already made half the bricks um, here. And so we've expanded to the northeast of America. So now we have uh, building products northeast of America and uh, right across Australia. And when you look at industrial property, it's obviously been a pretty uh, strong, fertile investment area recently with the move to online shopping and, mm. and the macro thematics there. Do you think there's... Cons- continued tailwinds there for industrial property, particularly when you compare it to the office market or, or residential property in Australia? Well, we're very glad we're in that space, I've got to tell you. And, uh, you know, we just signed up Amazon, which was the biggest deal, uh, you know, in Australia. Uh, and that's going to be a massive facility when it's finished. And a little bit before that, we signed up Coles with a new distribution centre. These distribution centres are completely changed. I mean, for the last 30, 40 years, you know, if you were the, you know, the most modern thing was to have cross-docking. 
you know, semi-trailers in this side, semi-trailer out that side. Well, it's not like that anymore. You know, these buildings, uh, you know, 10 storeys high, mm. semi-trailers come in one side and delivery vans go out the other. And so it's completely different. And the value of them, of course, is much greater than a single-storey building. Um, so it's a completely different concept. And, of course, you're right, click and collect, uh, buy online, uh, you know, buying from overseas and getting it delivered to your home in, you know, three or four days. This, this is the way of the future. And, um, and that's, uh, you know, been really driving it. I think we're going to see more of those. And we've got the land available and the resources there, uh, you know, to do it. Um, and it's, a, it's just a great opportunity. And so you've got a portfolio of businesses and, and investments and your net asset value is considerably higher than your, what your stock market capitalisation is. Does that frustrate you? And do you, do you spend any time trying to unlock that latent value or is it just uh, the nature of being a conglomerate and, and something that, that just is what it is? Yeah. Well, look, I don't think it is what it is. Um, we do go through periods when we're undervalued and we go through periods when we're fully valued. The issue what they see is they think of us brickworks, they think of us as a building products company. They look out 12 or 18 months and think our view is negative on building products and so therefore we get sold down. Um, not realising and not fully understanding what the company's about. Um, and if you look over our performance since we listed, it's something like 12 or 13% compound since 1961. So there's only one year we reduced the dividend. I'm not talking there was never any years when we didn't pay a dividend. 1975 was the only year we reduced it. It was either steady or went up. And there's very few companies, if any, that can claim that. Uh, and uh, you know, people got to realise it's a very strong, solid, robust, conservative-run company. Um, you know, the engine that provides the wealth sure, is building products, yeah. but we've managed to tuck enough away over the years that that that, that volatility gets washed out. And I reckon one one such company that's had a similar record with dividends is Solpats, who you share a um a cross ownership structure with. How aligned are the two companies? Do you actually? ensure that the culture between the two companies are, are similar from the outside it appears to be they are or are they just run as completely separate entities with um you know cross shareholdings yeah well i guess it's just a no um well clearly you know the milners are the, the backbone of both both companies and and their uh, views you know run deep and there's you know their sayings over four generations run very deep through the company so that you know really sets the scene for the culture but Actually, they are run as completely two independent companies with two independent boards. You know, Robert Milner, the chairman, is the only common director. He's chairman of both. But there are those same themes and, um, you know, conservative, long-term thinking. It's not about tomorrow's profits. It's about, you know, the profit in five or ten years' time or longer. So that's that's the way we think and that's the way we operate. And so there's lots of things I'd love to, to talk to you about today. I thought one of the things I was really keen to explore was a trend that appears to be happening around the world is is this move from a globalisation framework, which has been a really strong um, macro tailwind for a couple of decades, and, and potentially a move back towards localization. I guess before we go any further on that, do you think that is a, an emerging trend that we're going to see more of in uh, in the next 10, 20 years? Yeah, well, look, well, definitely in certain sectors. And, and look, everyone's had a big scare. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, when you can't produce any local pharmaceuticals or you can't get your own face mask there was a big panic and it was interesting to see how quickly certain industries responded but some of the factors that have been unleashed because of it are actually going to work against it for example uh, international shipping prices will fall down because the demand drops off um, and, and so that will make it easier for, for companies that are offshore to bring products in i notice you know we import cement and the price of cements come down so if anything it's worked in, into our advantage and of course, we've had a strengthening Australian dollar, which is working mm. against it. 
and, and all that is before we get to, you know, some of these core factors in Australia that we need to address if we want to get more manufacturing back here. So I guess there's the national security element of it when you've got, mm. you know, something like 90% of antibiotics manufactured in China. Mm. If there's a, a trade alliance between Western democracies and, and China's potentially not a part of that, we're, we're mm. quite exposed. Um, is that, that that's an important element that you think needs to change? Well, look, I think we need a respectful relationship with China and, and they need to respect that we might have views that are different to their own. But, you know, a respectful relationship would mean we'd still trade. I hear what you're saying about it and there's a lot of discussion about, uh, you know, a Western alliance or Anglosphere um, re-emerging and maybe that's something from a defence point of view more than a, a trading point of view because some of this, I mean, we used to, well, prior, prior when, uh, you know, England, of course, was in the, before they were in the uh, common market, you know, they were one of our biggest trading partners and we were, of course, smashed when they joined and hopefully we'd see more trade um, to England now that it's out of out of the um, well, United Kingdom, once it's now out of the Europe, Europe, European sphere. So I think there was some of that will re-emerge um, and I think it makes a lot of sense from a defence point of view with common language laws, um, you know, common history, that makes sort of sense, common culture. Uh, but I think we just need to have a respectful um, relationship with China and hopefully that can be two ways. And 5G appears to be in that that national security sort of territory and the potential role that could have going forward. Um, mm. What do you think the future looks like technology-wise in terms of which countries we deal with, how open we are to other mm. cu countries? Have you spent much time thinking about what the future could look like around well, 5G? Well, not really. I mean, we've seen through TPG that, of course, they were going to write, write out a um, you know, Chinese-based um, equipment for their 5G network and that got knocked on the head. And obviously, there's a, it comes back to a lack of trust there from on the part of the Australian government with the, with the security of that system. And we've seen the US also with TikTok and other things, you know, um, saying these apps are banned because they don't offer security. I mean, the very reason that people use things like WhatsApp is, of course, is they're, is they're, they're fully encrypted, so they're you know, hopefully private discussions. And um, But, you know, so people who are um, you know, law-abiding citizens, that's not really an issue. But if you're not a law-abiding citizen, they, they think it's great. So, uh, But, yeah, I don't know. You know, that, those sort of things are interesting undercurrents. So I just don't know if any of them are really going to you know, come and really sort of knock us about. There's other greater factors at the moment affecting us. And so, that, so you park the national security to one side, then you've got a, a need post-COVID to create a significant number of jobs in an economy that's, that's mm. really suffering. Um, what are the major roadblocks between creating manufacturing jobs in Australia? Well, look, we have to look at, go back to some of the fundamentals and the things that there's lots of issues out there that have been kicked around for a decade or more and never been addressed. I mean, Australia has a very, very difficult approval process. If you want to go build something, that new factory, we're trying to build new factories all over Australia. And the approval process has been horrendous. Having said that, it's been great to see what New South Wales has done and accelerated this program. We have 12 weeks for new brickworks for us in, uh, here in Western Sydney. It was just, it was, that's fabulous. Um, the other end is, is, is the cost base. And we used to have, I've got nothing against high wages, and we're always compensated by low energy. And of course, what's happened, we've lost this advantage of low energy. And and the classic is, you know, we're paying less than $2 a gigajoule for gas in the northeast of the US, which is about the international market price at the moment. And we're paying, you know, 9 and, and up to $10 a gigajoule, which is down from where it was a few years ago here. So it's, 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 that's an enormous issue. Anyone who needs gas for a feedstock, that, that doesn't work. And the thing that the conversation that seems to be going on is that so much of the population seems that you think that you can do everything with, it, with electricity. Well, of course you can't. Right? You can't use electricity as a feedstock, right? Um, you can't do it. So 
and and uh, for us, the technology doesn't exist for us to run a massive brick kiln on electricity. We, we, would, we would drain the grid if we tried mm. to put, you know, put um, elements to try and do that. It's just, it's just the technology is just not there. Um, you know, we could go back to coal, but we know that the community doesn't want us to do that. So, uh, you know, we don't. So we just bear the prices and we pass on those prices to community. And luckily, we have been able to recover them. But if you're working in, if you're making fertilizer or explosives or something like that, you can't pass them on because yeah. you'll just import the fertilizer or explosive at the international price. So, and have um, we got issues where we're selling gas to Japan from Woodside for around that two dollar mark, mm-hmm. or put significantly cheaper than Australian companies are able yeah. to buy? Well, absolutely. The ACCC put out a very long paper yesterday about it, and, and this is the point. They said the international price has come way down. Yeah. Um, to those sorts of levels. And it's interesting that the Indian government sets the gas price and they've set it at $1.90 a gigajoule uh, you know, this is yesterday. So, you know, uh, it's just completely out of kilter. And, you know, the, the local um, exporters have held the domestic price up to subsidise their, their over-expenditure on their um, gas exporting terminals. They got carried away. They built too many. I mean, that, that's the bottom line. They, we could have done with maybe three or four, but we didn't need six. Um, and that's that's really upset the balance. They didn't the last couple. They didn't even have the gas. They just said we'll drain the network, and that's what really you know put the pressure on, on domestic consumption. But it's not logical what they're doing, and, and I think it's very very unfair for Australian manufacturers. And, and another other point there is that most people don't understand is what sets the floor price price for electricity is the price of gas. So if the price of gas comes down, well the floor price price for electricity will come down. And because then you can use it as a, as, as a source, you know, in, in the evening when there's no sun and, and so on. So. Do you think there needs to be, there's a lot of people really passionate about the environment and that's, that's, that's fine. Um, but there, there's a, a desire by some people to lump all fossil fuels in the one basket or actually even all minerals. They, they sometimes yeah. don't, you know, identify the difference between coking coal and thermal coal when they're, they're saying they're against coal or, you know, yeah. gas versus coal. And I mean, the, the US... Um, carbon emissions have reduced a lot because of the use of, of natural correct, gas. Correct. Um, do you think maybe understanding those nuances and, and balancing them out is important in this conversation so that maybe some, some more productive decisions can be made about energy use in Australia? Look, we would we, benefit from more educated discussion and, and uh, community, you know, community discussion around these areas. But unfortunately, a lot of people make decisions on what you know, feels good. I think we're just trying to push it too quickly. Look, I think it's, no one's arguing it's not better for the environment and better for health of everybody if we didn't burn these fossil fuels in the atmosphere. We all breathe the air. So, mm-hmm. but, but how fast can we get there? What's a realistic timeline? Not trying to do it in five minutes. And, and this is the problem. You know, there are assets that need to be written off and run out. There needs to be technologies developed. We need to build a robust electricity distrib- distribution system we don't have at the moment. And, you know, how do we get that? What's the stepping stones to get there? And you know, clearly things like gas are a great stepping stone to help us get there because it is uh, um, much more, much cleaner than, than coal. And it does, there's no ash or anything going into the atmosphere. You know, if you like to think about it, all that's been left in the ground. I and mean, that's why fracking is such a great thing. Don't pull the coal out. Just take the gas out. Leave all the ash behind. It is much cleaner. But, but people get carried up in other, in other issues and, you know, but you know, by 2050 or 2060, you know, there's a good chance it could well be, you know, inverted from where it is now. We could be you know, 70, 80, 90 percent uh, renewables and only you know, 10 or 20 percent um, fossil fuels. But, but that's the sort of timeline. It's a generational thing. It's not a de- single decade. It can't be done. 
even the fracking versus non-fracking gas, do you think there needs to be a, a greater understanding? Even if people are against fracking gas, it doesn't necessarily make sense to be against natural gas or LNG well, full stop. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't go into well, in two states of ban, you know, fracking, but but in Victoria, they've also banned natural gas. That's right. You know, like, right, and, and drilling in Bass Strait. I mean, you know, there's, there's, they don't even have to frack in a lot of cases. It's just yeah. it's gas we get, you know. So, you know, you, I think... I think we need a more robust distribution system. I think that would help more competition, even though people argue whether or not they're viable. More competition is good. We need other sources of gas. There's plenty of gas up in Northern Territory. There's plenty of gas in the Perth Basin. I'm sure there's plenty of basin, uh, plenty of gas in the Great Australian Bight, but no one will go drill it. And fracking, yeah, look, I can understand if you want to frack around a town or a village or whatever, or, or you're concerned oh, that there's man. a leak in the water table or whatever, but, but, but there are lots of places where none of those things are a factor and, yeah. and you could, could get gas. And so energy is a huge one. What, what are some of the other, yeah. uh, I mean, you, you touched on red tape, even something mm. like payroll tax. We've got a, a small mm. apparel business we founded a few years ago and I always looked at payroll tax as something that seems pretty unjust in today's environment when yeah. you're trying to encourage yeah. companies to employ more and more people and there's the option to automate a lot of jobs. Do you think payroll tax is something that should be looked at to increase employment? Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's the first tax that should be removed. I've, I've always found it insidious. Because yeah. um, really, I mean, you know, it's straight off the employees' wages. They'd be all getting 9% more. But, but I was actually surprised we actually pay payroll tax in the US. I mean, it is a low-taxing country, but because we have federal, state, you know, county taxes and payroll tax. And, and so the overall tax burden is about the same. People talk about, you know, they have, might have a lower company tax at the federal level, but then they have... State taxes. Well, we don't have a state tax. And so, you know, in a way would be maybe the federal government stepped itself down, say down to 20%, and let the states take 5 or 10% of companies based in their state. Then all of a sudden they'd realise, oh, my God, I have to attract some businesses yeah. and have to give them an approval. Otherwise, we're not going to have any income. And they might actually become pro-business and try and help business instead of hinder us. And, you know, one of the things that my proud chairman, I, I think it was going to pass out and faint, was when we went to Pennsylvania the first time and the governor's representatives turned up at the hotel to greet us and to ask what could they possibly do to, for us to help, right? Help us and welcome us to their state. Um, you know, it's just impossible, you know, compared, it's just unbelievable compared to what we see here in Australia. So, you know, there's, there's that sort of thing that could be done, but, but definitely that payroll tax is, is another problem is like stamp duty. You know, we used to have stamp duty on shares. They reduced it and the volume went up. Well, you know, there's a lot of benefits that society could get with lower stamp duty on housing that would allow, you know, the elderly widow on her own with a four-bedroom house to sell the house and go for something smaller, but, but you won't because of the stamp duty. Now, some of these imposts have been removed, but, but there's got to be a better balance um, on some of these taxes. And, um, and look, there's a, a myriad of things that could be introduced that would still give the revenue that the, that the state needs, but, but not tax a specific issue like, like employment. And we've seen the states deal with this current crisis in, in different manners, and I guess they're all going to be so desperate for jobs. Do you think there is going to be more of a competitive environment where state governments look to attract different businesses that are willing to, to create jobs in their state, maybe more so than there has been in the past? Well, the way the GST works now, it actually it's a disincentive, isn't it? I mean, you know, if, you, if you've got a, a booming economy, your tax is going out of your state to a state is yeah. not performing as well. So the GST actually is counterproductive. And there's one of the problems with discussions in Australia. People only think of the first order events. They don't think of the second and the third order outcomes. Okay, if I, if I do this, what is going to be the reaction of people and, and the states and they adjust? 
to benefit themselves. And that's a second and third order impact. And that's a classic what's wrong with the GST. If it was based on what your turnover was in your state, full stop, then, then it would be a different whole different situation. And talk to me about the, the Australian property residential market. You touched on the stamp duty before. Um, a lot of viewers will be interested around uh, our property market and it's obviously pretty highly priced. What do you think is going to happen there in the next two to three well, years? Yeah, well, it's got, look, it's going to be quite diverse. I mean, I think the big trends, and we're seeing them here and in, in the US, I think you're going to see houses in the outer suburbs over apartments. That's happening. You're going to see people moving to regional areas because they know that they can work from home. They don't have to come into the office anymore. They can work from home. A lot of companies said you can do that. So big demand straight away at regional areas. We're seeing high-end um, demand for people coming and specifying high-end houses, multi-million dollar houses in the US and here. And of course, lovely, they're all face brick. Um, <laughs> and so we're seeing the, these, these trends emerge. There's no doubt that... that um, Sydney and Melbourne have been knocked around pretty savagely on pricing and um, Westpac was saying this morning that they feel that prices will come down at least 10%. But in other areas, at Queensland and particularly WA, it's had a very bad downturn. It was already starting yeah. to turn around and come up. So I think you're going to see Queensland, WA, South Australia, Tasmania all sort of just continue on without hardly miss a beat. Um, New South Wales and Victoria are going to have a bit, bit of a struggle. Um, so... Those are the sort of, sort of the, the big sort of trends that we're seeing. And you think that work from home movement isn't just a six to 12 month thing while we get over the virus? You think that's a longer term trend that's going to be here to stay? Well, if we take the view that it's a year before we get the vaccine or in a year's time, we're back to the beginning if we've got to let it run through our society, um, it's going to be that long. It'll be 18 months into it. I think people are going to make commitments. They are making commitments based on the fact that they were given a, approval to work from home. They're not going to want to come back. Um, I've been concerned for other reasons with like young people on their own, you know, in a small apartment over a long period of time about their mental health to try and encourage them if they want to come to work, come to work. So we're being a pretty open sort of policy, allow people to do one or the other, whatever suits them. Um, and we're worried about our culture if everyone works from home. So we'd like to see people in the office a couple of days a week, um, but on different shifts. So we don't, we don't, and we don't, we're not allowed, allow people to cross pollinate at all. So I think that's going to be a bit of a mixed bag, but I, I don't think there's going to be many employees that demand um, that employees turn up every day, unless it's something like manufacturing where they physically have to be there. When you look at your office footprint, is that mm. an area of the business where you'd like to shave off X percent to, to save some money or you're not looking into it at this stage? Look, we, we were very lucky because we, we, we're so you know, diverse anyhow. Um, and, you know, we, don't, we, have, we never went to the chicken coop type arrangement, only in a few places. I never agreed with it. I thought it, 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 it treats humans don't meant to be dealt like, with like that. And so we haven't really got a problem. We've got a couple of places we're going to have to spread it out a little bit. Um, but we're in the process of putting a new office in anyhow. So we just, just spread people out a little bit. But it'd be interesting. That's a real good question, though, about what's going to happen to commercial uh, property in the city. Because on one side, of course, you're going to have a lower density. But on the other side, maybe half the people are at home. And where's the balance? Is, is there a surplus or there's not a surplus? Uh, we'll have to see. But either way, I, I wouldn't be uh, putting money in that sector. And it could be a while before we see uh, a lot of cranes on the horizon again after the current crop is completed. Yeah, I think some of the incentives being bandied around in, mm. in Melbourne office space are sort of 50% at the minute for um, extended leases, which is, mm. is extraordinary. Um, talk to me about migration has been sort of a key pillar of the Australian economy and really it was responsible for us not having a, a recession prior to this since 94. Mm. The government 
will look to boost migration. You'd imagine once it's allowed to, to keep our property prices high, but there's going to be a balancing act with uh, these new Australians wanting jobs versus the, the people currently here desperate for jobs as well when this all clears. How do you think they'll go about navigating that balance? Yeah, look, and, and look, you go back to the GFC, it was a great example where they did increase immigration by 100,000 a year and that, that was one of the issues, the, the, one of the things they did that got us out of that, that uh, recession. But, of course, what it did also is kept the, the jobs recovery, the percentage of unemployment stayed high for the next 14 years or so. So it took a long time to get the unemployment down. In amongst all that, one of the parts of immigration, of course, is students. And so we've got a whole sector here, you know, the university sector is knocked out because the you know the customers can't get to, you know so to me that would be the first thing you'd do you'd get them back let them come through quarantine they're going to do it if you're going to be in the country for a year or more you're going to do two weeks quarantine bring them through bring them through you know Hamilton Island or somewhere you know like you know bring them in um, but then they need to get immigration going as a, as, a, as, a, as a driver because each one of those people that arrives creates demand and that creates employment. Um, and, you know, it was what we found was that even though, you know, we had close to you know, full employment, if you call 5% full employment, um, you know, farmers couldn't get people at crop time and, and or harvest time and, and have to go to these international students and backpackers to do the work. And there's got to tell you there's something wrong. Hopefully, I'd like to see a bit of a psyche reemerge in Australia where, where people, you know, are proud that they work no matter what the task is and they return to the workforce because, you know, there's lots of sectors and regional areas they need these people. And in terms of people being proud about work, and we've had big government stimulus handouts, mm. and then when the government tells people they can't work, um, that seems justifiable. How's it going to go when, when this comes out of the system? How do you think people are going to tolerate all of a sudden these handouts mm. being taken away mm. when the world hopefully gets back to some level of normality? Well, I was, trying, I was just looking at some figures on this this morning, and only 12% of, the, of that people who got that money spent it on... Uh, you know, food and alcohol, et cetera. Most of the other people either paid down debt, you know, or put it in the bank. You know, they built up their personal balance sheet in, in anticipation that the money was going to run out. So um, assuming there isn't a second wave and there isn't a, you know, another huge number of people lose their jobs, you'd hope that most of those people are going to be reasonably robust when the reduction comes along. Because um, most of them have handled the money responsibly. And, and so... I hope that was the outcome, but for some, it's going to be pretty tough if they spent it all the way along be on the bones of the backside. You know? And in terms of, uh, I know you touched on the GFC before, there were some introductions or, or some things introduced from APRA post GFC around uh, the Australian banks and, and designed to keep them financially viable. And the net result of that was it just made life very easy for banks to loan to home loans and, and mm. far higher risk to loan for other things. Do you think there needs to be something put in place around productive debt um, that's in turn creating jobs versus non-productive debt, e.g. just for home loans, to incentivise banks and other groups to, to loan to, to businesses or development companies that are, uh, need that debt for more productive purposes? Well, look, just to this current exercise, and we saw it in the GFC, you know, um, this wasn't a financial calamity like it was in the GFC, and yet the banks tightened up the, you know, the lending to mm. corporations. And, but why? You know, mm. um, there was no reason to do that, and yet they made it much more difficult for most companies to get through the last six months than it would need, need be. Um, and so, you know, that is, is a concern, and yet they were really quite... They, they told uh, people who are bo residential borrowers that, that, you know, they could have... Don't even pay your mortgage if you don't want to. Having said that, um, 
once again, I saw, saw this morning that the, there's only 1% of loans in arrears um, and some have asked for a deferral, but, but most people are meeting their commitments as required. And so at this point in time, there appears to be a fair bit of liquidity in the system and there'd be no reason why the bank couldn't be lending for other, these other productive enterprises. Um, but they, they're very risk adverse. And I, I go back 15 years ago or 20 years ago when we did some big acquisitions, you know, one bank would lend us, you know, six or $700 million. Um, and now you have to have a syndicate of a dozen banks to, to borrow five or $600 million. Well, you know, that just tells you how risk adverse they are and, um, and they're concerned about, you know, making a mistake, which yes. So somehow that needs to be loosened up and they need to be more supportive. Is, is it because it takes a lot more skill if you're a banker and you've got to analyze each business and what their future prospects are it, it requires a lot more skill than if you're just providing a loan for a, a commercial property with a 20 percent deposit where it's harder to get into trouble is it as simple as that or am i missing something i uh, look i'm not sure in the inner workings of the bank but definitely they've become risk adverse and they've you know they've been beaten up in public a couple of times and yeah I guess they don't want to be associated with a calamity or if they are, they want to reduce, reduce the amount of the calamity to the minimum amount, but, but they're bankers and there's a risk involved and they need to take it. I mean, the people who are borrowing the money are taking the risk, you know, um, you know, they need to sort of, you know, toughen up a little bit. And, <laughs> and it's, we, also, we also saw the same with the politicians. All of a sudden they can make the decisions in the last six months, which is unthinkable, you know, yeah. eight or nine months ago. And I thought, well, okay, if you can, if you can toughen up and make the decision, then why can't you make some good long-term decisions for the country? You know, all the time. You know, why are they so risk adverse? Yeah. And talk to me about just while we finish up the, the broad Australian economic outlook. What are the, the exciting opportunities in Australia, do you think, over the next five years plus? Well, obviously, the first one is get ourselves back on the feet and get yeah. get the tourism industry going and, and get that back. I, look, I think the, the thing is that people go wrong in Australia is they think we're a developed country. We're, we're a developing country and, and we've got a lot of work to do to really you know, make this country as, 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 I hate to use the term, as great as it can be. And, you know, there's some great projects out there that mightn't have a payback in five years, but they'll have a real good payback in 50 years. And, you know, keeping the water in the Murray-Darling Basin is one. I mean, they've been around for 100 years, these proposals. High-speed rail between the major capital cities. Um, you know, the strength of the electricity grid. There's a, there's a lot of things we can do and um, create lots of opportunities, high-paid jobs for, for our citizens. Um, and that's, you know, just think about Western Australia, how big it is. You know, they've got water in the northwest, more than what they know what to do with. Most of it runs down the Ord to sea at some incredible speed. You know, if that was brought inland, I mean, the, the scale of the agriculture that we could, we could have in Western Australia would be massive. And you know, it just seems to be beyond, um, you know, anybody to, to grasp the nettle and go do it. A lot of those projects, those big government projects, mm. does it feel like now is potentially the time we're going to have a lot of people that need work? We've got interest rates at at all-time lows for from the last 5,000 years, is now the time for the government to go a little bit harder on debt and, and commit to fiscal stimulus more so than they have before? Yeah, look, absolutely. And they and they should have a development fund, and it could be. We've got $3 trillion in super. We've yeah. got a trillion, a trillion into there. The, the Reserve Bank is, is, is printing money, so why don't they put half a trillion in there and, and say to the citizens, if you want to put your super money in here, we'll give you 3% tax-free. Hmm. Like government guaranteed, people would fall over themselves in the rush to put the money in, and we're going to build some of these big projects that are long-term payback for our country. Um, I, I think it's absolutely it's it's the sort of time that we should. How did we ever manage to do the Snowy Mountain schemes? I mean, yeah. what a fabulous! That was in the 30s they envisioned this, you know. And we've been getting payback ever since. 
you know, that's you know, fabulous. And so there's there's a lot of those projects out there and, and the sort of jobs that you create. I mean, and also you need to have a robust. So here's a classic. So you can't really fly at the moment, right, because, you know, you're so close together and all that. But if you're in a train, you've got more space, mm. you know, or if there's a volcano and you can't fly, the train still goes. Or there's a bad storm. The train, the, the, so it's a robust system. Oh, I can't go by the plane. The plane does it in an hour. By the time I go to the airport and all this, it's much going to take me four or five. Oh, I can hop on the train, you know, down my local um, shops and, and, and get off, you know, two hours or three hours later in Melbourne. Like, so, you know. is there the, is there, do you think there's the, the commitment with the current federal government to, to commit to these projects? I think we just have to see. I think they're in shell shock at the moment there. And a number of them, and by the way, I, I think, um, including your Premier, needs to take a couple of days off. And, 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 you know, because they're, they're, these guys have been every day for four yeah. or five months. They must be exhausted and they need to go away and have a rest. And, you know, there's, surely there's somebody else who can stand in there for a day and give the daily report, give these guys a bit of a, you know, and women a bit of a, bit of a, a, bit of a rest. You know, but yeah, but if they've got any uh, any fuel left in the tank when they get to the end of this, you know, maybe they might think, well, gee, that if we can do this, well, why can't we do something big? Great. All right. Well, really appreciate the time, Lindsay. It's been great talking to you, and uh, look forward to following Brickworks uh, share price and and future future prospects. Thank you very much. It's been really enjoyable. Thanks, Lindsay. Cheers, mate. This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health Insurance with AIA Vitality, cover that protects and rewards. To find out more, call 133 AIA or visit au today. If you're enjoying Masters of the Market, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.